And so, Lord, as we open your word, we pray you would open our hearts to hear from you, to learn from you, and, Lord, to have our faith strengthened in and by you. Amen. 27 years ago, it was a day that we can only presume began for her like any other day. She was a young woman with a little four-year-old child that she loved, and her day revolved very much about taking care of him. He was enrolled in school, in a preschool, and so part of her day was given over to bringing him to that school and picking him up. She lived in a nation where it was not typical for women to drive, and so she had someone driving. And on that particular afternoon, she was in the car with her little four-year-old son when it became evident that an accident was about to occur, a tragic and life-threatening event. And like any good mother would, I suppose, she put herself around the little body of her boy, protecting his own life through hers. Whatever injuries he sustained, I'm not sure of. What I do know is that the boy came through the accident relatively unscathed, but his mother did not. In fact, the nature of her injury, a brain injury, produced in her what physicians call, I am told, a persistent vegetative state. In other words, a coma. She was comatose, dead to the world, essentially, physically alive, but incoherent, not aware or conscious of anything that was going on around her, and totally unable to move, speak, or care for herself, or interact with anyone. In fact, the physicians told her family that there was essentially no hope that she would ever come out of that coma. Some of you may have walked through that situation with loved ones, and if you have my heart goes out to you. The friends and family that I have had who have had to go through that, I know have suffered greatly. It can be very difficult to know what to do in a situation like that. When the physical body of the person is sufficient to keep them alive, but there is no life there, so to speak, because they are completely unable to interact with the world. But maybe you read the story. Maybe you know the news that was released this week. Apparently, relating to what happened about six months ago, but it hit the international headlines this week, and it was one of the brightest and happiest stories of the week, that after 27 years, this woman who doctor after doctor after doctor had said would never come out of her coma, and that there was no hope that she would ever return to any kind of meaningful life whatsoever, began to speak began first to make mumbling noises and then to speak. In fact, the very first thing that she said, we are told, was to call out the name of her son. Perhaps not surprisingly, her mind, her whole life had been sort of paused in that moment of tragic chaos. And so for her, it was still immediate. She was calling out the name of her little four-year-old boy, a boy who is now about the age that she was then. I can only imagine how disconcerting and confounding it must have been for her, coming out of that cloud of absolute blankness and finding that the world has transpired 27 years around her. But her son said he never gave up hope. He had faith that she would come out of that coma. He believed beyond anything that any doctor could tell him that if he would continue to seek her care that she would come out of it. 
Now, many of the physicians that have talked about this story, and if you've read about it this week, you may have heard, have hastened to add that it is a very unusual story. That in some ways, it's almost problematic because it can create the perception that anytime someone is in such a situation, the best thing to do is to care for them for 20 or 30 or 40 years until they come out of the coma. And physicians will say that is probably not the wisest thing. It may create in people expectations that are not legitimate. But I couldn't help in reading this story and see in it an illustration of faith. It is a miracle of God that this woman came out of that coma after so long. And though she is in need of much therapy and much assistance, she is able to communicate, to talk. She's alive, she's awake, she's aware. And she and her son, they are together again. He really moved heaven and earth. He took her from the Middle East, where they are from, to the UK, to Germany, through decades of care and other doctors. And so it was my intention to begin today's message with this bright point of hope and this reminder that God sometimes places within us a confident faith that cannot be explained. It should be recognized that there is a difference between being unwilling to deal and accept reality when God would say to us with gentleness and love, I need you to give something up. I need you to give up something, some hope that you have in order to trust in me. And there's a difference between that and recognizing when God has says, don't let go, don't give up, Amen. keep pressing in. Amen. And I can't delineate what that difference is for you. It really varies from circumstance to circumstance. What I can say is faith in God will tell us what to pray for, what to believe for, what to hold on to. And there are times where God says, no matter what anyone else says to you, you hold on to this promise from me. Amen. It may look impossible, it may be impossible, but all things are possible for the one who believes. And with God, nothing is impossible. It's an encouraging, even an exciting message. And so it lifted me up. But I couldn't help but feel put down again when news of this week came forth that bears mentioning the tragedy of the events yesterday at the synagogue in San Diego just to our south. Reminds me of a truth that is buried in this story of the comatose woman also, which is that every day begins for each one of us like any other day, and every day holds things for each one of us that none of us can predict. It's sad, so very, very sad, and even very frustrating to me to consider that in recent weeks we have seen consistent, although totally disconnected and dispersed, the events of life-ending murderous assault upon people in places of worship. Just weeks ago in New Zealand, the murderous attacks on Muslim mosques echoed, in a sense, last week on Easter Sunday with the bombings in Christian churches of Sri Lanka and then yesterday the shootings in the Jewish synagogue to our south. These were not carried out by people related in any other way than this. It cannot be denied and should not be ignored that what motivates people in such act activity is nothing other than Satan. Yes. It is satanic. It is demonic. 
There are people with ideologies that they think are being expressed in that, and those ideologies ought to be rejected and cast down. Make no mistake about it. But the reality is that those ideologies are not really what's responsible for the murderous activity, nearly so much as the Satan that lies behind those ideologies. And there is no policy or politician that will be able to solve this problem, although there are policies to be discussed and politicians should be held to account to do what can be done in society. But the reality is it is prayer that must come to bear on this situation because it's only through prayer that such things can be properly answered according to faith. That is not to say there's nothing else to be done in prayer. It is to say prayer is the way each of those things must be approached. We must call out to God. We must call out with faith. And we must pray for the pulling down of strongholds, the breaking of bondages, and the illuminating of our world with the light of God that will cast out the darkness of the wicked one. I believe by faith that our prayer is powerful and can make a difference. And of course, part of the prayer that we lift up today most passionately with our hearts, and Lord, it's to your ears that these words are said. My brothers and sisters and I together agree in the spirit. We pray for blessing and comfort for those today who are mourning the loss of loved ones. It does not matter what their spiritual or doctrinal affiliations are. Our prayer is that those families would be blessed. And we pray that God would use this moment to draw all people to himself. And we pray that there would be comfort to those who have lost and that there would be justice for those who have done wrong. But most of all, we pray, Lord God, help and heal our wicked world. The Lord desires to do that through you and I. He's looking for faithful people. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a faithful person. Hopefully you can say that with great confidence, but some of you may have been saying it by faith, right? You may not yet see the evidence of it, but you are saying it by faith. A faithful person is someone who has been filled full of faith. And faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And if you want to know what that looks like in Tagalog, there you go. It's in front of you. Faith is the assurance, the substance of those things which are hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Consider how powerful this statement is. That is to say, faith in God, faith in Christ, is not just some kind of wishful thinking. I really hope that maybe someday you'll maybe do something. Rather, faith is the declaration you have already said, you have already done. This is who you are. And there is power in that because that is real faith. See, wishful thinking is recognizing a lack and hoping that it can get filled. There's something I don't have. There's something I need or want, and I hope I can get it. But there's no faith in that. But real faith is saying you have already given. You have already spoken. You have already died so that we can live. And in your word is the substance of what we hope for, of what we hope in. Now, in what do we hope? In whom do we hope? We hope in Jesus Christ. Therefore, faith is the substance of Jesus Christ. I mention the events of recent weeks because it is clear to me that one of the things that the enemy desires to do in the midst of all this chaos is to create 
this question in the minds of people of faith. Do I dare go to church? Is it safe for me to go to church? And people begin to wonder about all the steps and protocols and procedures to make places safe. I don't mean to poo-poo that too much, but let me tell you, friends, let me answer it very, very clearly for you. Is it safe for you to go to church? No, but it's not safe for you to stay away either. And in fact, the danger if you stay away is a danger to your soul. That's greater than just to your body. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can harm your body and kill you, but fear the one who holds both life and death, heaven and hell in his hands, who holds your soul in his hands. Have a reverent fear for God. But the enemy desires to create a fear. You know why he wants us to be afraid of coming to church? Because he's afraid of us being the church. It sends him fleeing in fear. And it should. Not because we have any power in ourselves, but because all-powerful God is in us. That's the substance of what we hope in. So be not afraid. But do not forsake the assembling together. Listen, your life and mine, our days are numbered, but they're in God's hands. No one can pull the shade down on your life without God's permission. But none of us have a promise of tomorrow. Jesus talked about this very thing when he talked to people of faith about their faith. He talked about how there were events that took place that were directly responsible of the evil of people. Human beings who were doing evil that had no justification. Jesus mentioned how Herod had taken people of faith and had had them executed because they opposed him. He had had them killed. And Jesus said, do you think those people were worse sinners than you? Because that was the ancient mentality. The ancient world supposed that if something bad happened to you or in your life, it was your fault. But what Jesus was saying to them was, do you really believe that? Because it was recognizable that those were people who had faith in God. Jesus mentioned something else. There was a tower that fell on people in Jerusalem and they died. It was a random accident. The tower apparently had not a strong foundation and toppled over and those people were killed. And Jesus said, don't think that they were the worst sinners in Jerusalem. Recognize this, it could happen to anybody. It could happen to you. The point is not how you will go, but what you do with the time that you have. When it's your time, it's your time. But now is your time to live by faith and not by sight. Not afraid, cowering, hiding somewhere. I think of Gideon who was trying to thresh wheat in the, in the wine press because he was afraid. He was afraid of the enemies of the people that were going to come and get him. But what God said to him was, you are a mighty man of valor. That was the reality. He wanted to give him the substance of who he was. I was in... Seattle, just a little less than a year ago, it was my first visit to that beautiful city. And at, while we were there, I noticed there was a, a great deal of construction going on and there were all these very high cranes. I had turned to my family and said it would be terrible to be one, under one of those cranes if they came down because they look sort of spindly or whatever, but I had no notion that it would ever really happen. And sadly, another tragedy this week, one of those cranes came down in Seattle. Not only were two crane operators killed, God rest their souls, but also those in cars below them. Those weren't the worst sinners in Seattle. It could have been me. It could have been you. The point is not for us to be afraid of that, but to have faith in God. 
There's a wonderful moment in the Lord of the Rings series written by that wonderful faithful believer himself, J.R.R. Tolkien, in which Gandalf the Wise says to a hobbit, we don't get to choose the times we live in. We don't get to choose our time. All we can choose is what to do with the time that we are given. That little hobbit, a little tiny creature, is facing off against this astronomical kind of evil in that fantasy world. And even though it is not scripture and it's not intended as a direct parallel, you can see through J.R. Tolkien's faith what he was referring to. That we are on a mission and that mission often pits us right against the powers of hell. And we may feel like little, little hobbits. We may feel overwhelmed by what we face. And we may say, as, uh, as that hobbit did, I wish I didn't have to do this mission. I wish I didn't have to live in these times. But the voice of the wisdom of God would say to us, it's not for you to choose the time you live in or what you have to face, but only what you will do with the time I've given you. As for me, I would like to live it by faith. You know, the opposite of faith, the opposite of love, is fear. That's really what animates the enemy's activity. Hatred is a manifestation of fear. People hate what they fear. People respond with hatred when they are afraid. And what the enemy knows how to do better than anything else is make us afraid. But faith will fill us with courage. Faith will grant to us the character and nature of the king. And that is something which abides, which cannot be taken away from us, which cannot be broken, which cannot be overcome. It is a light shining in the darkness and the darkness can't snuff it out and the darkness can't even conceive or comprehend it. So faith, hope, and love, these are eternal, according to 1 Corinthians 13. They abide. They do not wear out. They do not fade away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but faith, hope, and love will remain because they are of God, because they are God. And the greatest of these is love. God is love, and the manifestations of love are faith and hope and other fruit of the Spirit. For Ten uh, sermons, this is the tenth, we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians, and we return today, having paused for Easter, but really everything that we looked at during the time leading up to Easter and our celebration of the resurrection fits so squarely into the life of fruitfulness in the Spirit. It all has to do with bearing out the faith that God has placed within us. In the Greek, the word for faithfulness, as it may be translated, in your list of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness is where we're at today. The word is pistis. It's actually faith. Now, is there any distinction between faith and faithfulness? In Galatians 5.22, the literal word being used there is faith, but it is understood to be meaning that we should be filled with faith, that we should bear the fruit of faith. And while we might make some semantic, linguistic distinctions between faith and faithfulness, really, they are the same thing. That's what this, this union in the Greek language represents. To have faith is to be filled with faith. Jesus said, even a little faith will move mountains. So faith is not so much a quantitative entity, but a qualitative one. We often talk about not having enough faith or wanting more faith. Don't we all feel that way? If you've ever felt like you wanted more faith, you can wave your hands at me and make me feel so much more encouraged. 
First of all, I'll know you're awake. And secondly, I'll know I'm not the only one that feels as though I don't have enough faith. But the reality is, thank you, faithful ones. What Jesus said is even just a little bit of faith is enough to move mountains. So it's not so much that we don't have enough faith as that we don't trust the faith that we have. What God is saying is, I've given you faith, now believe in it. Act upon it. Activate your faith by being filled with it. Instead of being filled with something else, be filled with faith. Instead of trusting in something else, trust in God and that's faith. And then act upon it. Therefore, faithfulness is the character of one who can be relied upon. Faithfulness in the eyes of God is the character of God filling us. And that's what we've been talking about in this Fruit of the Spirit series all along. God's character being born out in us. Now, I'm indebted to Larry Pierce, who's done a study on Greek terms throughout the scriptures and made it available online. And I want to share some of his insights with you. He's taken a look at this word faith as it shows up in Galatians 5.22. And he's seen how it's used across the Greek New Testament, the original texts of the New Testament Bible. And faith is usually focused in one direction. Uh, and there's a variety of different ways that it can be. So one direction would be on God. Faith relating to God, when we find the word used that way, it carries these connotations or this kind of definition. It's the conviction that God exists and is the creator and ruler of all things. In other words, the one and only maker. And that he is the provider, and he bestows eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. In other words, this kind of faith is that God is, and that he is a rewarder of those who faithfully seek him. That is faith fixated on God. When faith is focused in its phrasing on Christ, it's used to describe a strong and welcome conviction or belief that Jesus is the Messiah, that through him we obtain eternal salvation in the kingdom of God. So faith in Christ is Christian faith. In other words, that's how faith came to be called the faith, keeping the faith. Are you keeping the faith or not? Uh, are, do you know the faith? Are you sharing the faith? In other words, the faith becomes, even in the New Testament, even at a very early time, a shorthand for essentially the gospel for the people who all share this belief that Jesus is God and that God offers us salvation through Jesus Christ. So it is the set of ideas and doctrinal statements, but most importantly, most predominant, the, the number one notion here is that it is our trust in God himself manifest to us through Jesus Christ, which produces faith. Faith, therefore, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit that comes to us from abiding in Christ. Amen. It's what we've said over and over again about the fruit of the Spirit. They are all manifestations of love. Faith, hope, love, these three abide, and the greatest of these is love. That is uh, saying every one of these is essentially love in some form or expression. And faithfulness is love. In fact, what God says is, the ones whom he loves, he will grant faith to them, and they will show their love to him by obeying faithfully what he has said to do. Amen. Therefore, it's a love language faith. It is the love language for God, I would say. And it is a, like the other fruit of the Spirit, a loving and fruitful manifestation of kingdom character, of Christ's character, of God. 
So if we look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and its statement about faith, that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen, we find these two ideas go hand in hand, that faith itself is an assurance. It gives us the strength and courage to believe in what we cannot see, but what we know through faith. And therefore, it produces enduring faithfulness in us. You see, as we lay hold of the foundation of God and build our lives upon Him, our lives become the fruitful evidence of God's work in the world and His faith in us gives us the strength to sustain through every trial. Hallelujah. So let's look at these and see how they connect. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is trust. Turn to the person on the other side of you and say, faith is trust. You know, it's interesting that in our world, if I talk to you about a family trust, you know that I'm referring to essentially a financial instrument. It's something that is um, created in order to hold the valuable elements of an estate in trust for those who will be heirs of the estate. When I say faith is trust, I invite you to think of it this way. There's a family trust in heaven and God wants to make you an heir. And you and I, we are heirs together in Christ of that family trust, but the trust is no good to us if we don't trust in it. Imagine if you had a trust, you know, people can write checks off of their trust. Maybe you've gotten a check or you have a trust and you know that you can, you can distribute funding out of that. Imagine if you had access to the trust fund of God, but you never applied it because you wondered whether it was any good. Well, I don't know if anyone's going to honor this. Let me tell you, you have wealth reserved for you in heaven. You have power reserved for you in heaven. Jesus said, I gave you the keys of the kingdom and hell won't be able to prevail against it. In fact, you'll break down the gates of hell with this. But how sad it would be if you and I did not step out in faith to operate in trust that he will really do what he has said he will do. But now I want to say this, brothers and sisters, he will really do what he has said he will do. So step out in faith, in trust, and walk on the water. Do the miracle. Amen. Be the person who has the word that gives the comfort, that gives the encouragement. Be the one who discerns in the spirit, who calls those things that are not as though they are, who speaks into being that which God has promised through the spirit. Be the one who stands on the word. Be the one who swings the word as the sword of the spirit. Be a light in the darkness because of God's faith at work in you. It's available to every single one of us. All who would believe if we will trust. How do we have such assurance? We stand on the foundation. How do we produce fruit? We abide in the vine of Christ. How do we have assurance of faith? We build on the foundation of Christ. Here in the Greek, the word assurance, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, is hypostases, hypostases. It means, actually, understanding. It is the combination of the Greek word for with, by, through, or under, and the word for stand, stasis, understand. But it means a foundation, something that has been placed underneath that is firm and that can be built upon, something that's not shakable, something with an actual existence, something that's solid, substantive, a real being. Therefore, this is the substantial quality or the nature of a person or thing. 
And it can be related there as steadfastness of mind, firmness, courage, conviction, confidence. In other words, we stand on Christ and that's the activity of faith. Simply standing on what he has already laid down. And it is in that stance and only in that stance that we can stand against the wiles of the wicked one. Elsewhere, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6, take up the full armor of God so you'll be able to resist in the evil day. The evil day is the day in which you see in the world the wickedness of the enemy being released in all these ways, natural disasters, horrific events, and people doing evil. All of that is the evil day. How do we stand in that? How do we not run fleeing and afraid from that? Where do we go in it? We stand on Christ. We put on the full armor of God. And in doing so, we stand firm. Histeme is the word that Paul uses in the Greek here. Maybe you know of antihistamines. Antihistamines knock down the, uh, the response, the immune response that your body puts up, that it stands. In fact, the uh, medical use of the uh, term, the root, the Greek term, histo, has to do with structure, things that are structured out of the body out of the body structure. Here, Paul is saying, this is how you stand up. The enemy is going to try and knock you down, but how you stand is to stand on the hypostasis, the understanding of Christ, to stand on the undergirding, or as the ancient Hebrew scripture said, underneath the everlasting arms of God. So stand firm, having armored yourself, and let faith arise like a shield. The shield of faith rises up to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. But it's not just a defensive posture. It's also to take the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, sharper than any two-edged sword, and take back territory from the enemy and infiltrate the enemy's territory. We don't wrestle against flesh or blood. This isn't about fighting people. It is about tearing down strongholds and cutting off the enemy. And we can do that by faith. Now, you may say, Pastor Court, what are some practical ways? So we abide in Christ, we read the Word. Well, yes, reading the Word would be one. If you're going to have the sword of the Spirit, you've got to know the Word of God. Having the Word in you and you being in the Word on a daily basis. Remember, you don't know the day or the hour. You don't know the day a gunman arises or a crane falls down or a building wavers or an earthquake comes or a heart stops pumping or a car breaks down. You don't know what's around the next corner, but what you can do is stand on God's word if you know God's word. But how will you stand if you don't know it? How will you have faith? The word says faith comes by hearing the word of God. So every time you hear the word of God and receive it with faith, you are receiving faith. It's an infusion of faith. So when we say, I want more faith, read more word. Not just mechanically, but faithfully. Filled with the Spirit. Looking for guidance. Depending upon it. Are you afraid? Read the word and find courage. Are you confused? Read the word and gain understanding. Are you discouraged? Read the word and stand on what it says. Speak it out. That's a powerful way to activate your faith. Pray at all times in the Spirit. We're a Pentecostal church. We pray in tongues around here because they pray in tongues here. Because the gift of spiritual language is a gift that cannot be discerned by the enemy and it is a way to speak the promises of God so that the enemy cannot decipher and the enemy cannot desecrate. 
There is power in praying in tongues. I encourage you to pray in it. And if you haven't received the gift of spiritual language, simply ask. God says he will give to those who ask. The Apostle Paul said, ask for the greatest gifts so that the work of God can be done through you. Be praying for prophetic insight to share with one another. Be praying for miraculous faith, for miracle healings, for deliverances, for miraculous levels of gifts of help. And in praying this way, God will provide your faith with answers. Be on the alert with all perseverance. You know, we cannot expect to stand in faith if our constant position in life is to run away into distractions. If binge watching is your way to comfort yourself after a hard week, or if your confidence is found in liquid courage, as the bartenders like to call it, if you and I only run and flee away from those things which worry or fatigue or confuse or confound us, then we have succumbed to the distraction of the devil. I'm not saying that, that some of these things I've mentioned don't have a place. What I am saying is if we are constantly looking to get away from reality, we are losing the substance of our faith. A lot of times we say we are tired, burned out, worn out, when the reality is what we really are is afraid. Afraid of a world we can't control or understand and of a lack that we are looking to fill rather than a faith on which we stand. But look at Jesus. He spent three and a half years in some of the most brutal kind of ministry demands that can possibly be imagined with every force of the world and the spirit realm working against him or at least I should say many forces in the spirit realm of the enemy. He spent 40 days in the wilderness with no food facing the devil face to face. Talk about tired, but that's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He comes out of it filled with faith. He stands in the pulpit of Nazareth and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captive and sight to the blind and the acceptable year of the Lord. In fact, when you and I are standing on faith, we are filled and fueled and fired up, not tired and not distracted and not discouraged. So we look with perseverance. We isolate and identify the places of prayer where we are to intercede and the power of the Lord God is with us to do that. We make petition for each other. We should be praying for each other all the time. Not just when we're here in this building, but brothers and sisters, Kapati, let's pray for every believer that is a part of PCF. Pray for the Lord to unify us. Pray for the Lord to, to uh, convict us where it is needed. Pray for the Lord to give us courage and to give us the power to stand on our most holy faith. Pray for every believer in LA. Pray for every Christian in California. Pray for every Christian in the US and the Philippines and every nation around the world. Pray for Christians that are persecuted and facing imprisonment and death and pain and fear. Pray for Christians that are losing their faith. Right now, someone out there doesn't know if they can keep on believing in Jesus. And your prayer in the eyes of heaven may be the way that faith reaches them again. Pray. And like Paul said, so I will say, pray for me. Paul said, pray for me that I would preach the gospel with boldness. 
I know you do, and I ask you again to pray for me that I would have faith. I get distracted. I get afraid. I want to run away and hide. I face the enemy and my knees start to knock, but your prayers will give me faith and give me strength, and my prayers will be stronger for you because of that. Is that a deal? Will we pray for each other? I know we do, and we continue to. You may be praying that I'm going to come to a conclusion sometime soon, and your prayer will be answered. And if you want evidence of it, just have faith. Faith is the evidence that makes the invisible palpable. The world itself was made out of things that we can't see. That's what Hebrews says. The invisible God made the visible world in an invisible way. But faith makes that evident to us. Elechos is the Greek. And it means evidence. But I like how it can also mean not only a conviction but a proof. Now, I'm not a math guy, but if you know higher math, you know that sometimes mathematical theorems and formulas, they have to be, in fact, that's my understanding, is they always have to be evidenced through a proof. You know, when you go into the math class and the math professor has all that writing that she's put on the board and it is all that, those confusing Greek symbols and everything, but altogether what it is is step-by-step proving the theorem. It's the evidence that makes it evident that this is true. Once something is seen, you no longer need that kind of a proof. hundred years ago, Albert Einstein put forward his theory of relativity and began to talk about something that nobody had ever conceived was possible before, and yet now we find out is one of the most important structures in the universe, a black hole. And the only way that it could be found was through the proof of math. He could see something that no one else could see. Now we have a picture of a black hole. Did you see that recently? An actual photo, if you want to call that, a radio uh, information of a black hole. Now you can see it. doesn't require, but people already believed in it. You know how they believed in it? Because of the proof, the mathematical proof of it. Our faith in God is proven here. Now, somebody would say, that's not proof. But let me tell you, if you don't know calculus, you're not going to be able to read one of those mathematical proofs, right? But that doesn't mean it ain't a proof. You may not know this word, but I tell you it's a proof. You may not know the symbols and you may not know the structures and you may not know the protocols, but you can know the proof and by faith you know it. So that when you read it and see it, you know what will later become visible. And when it is visible, then everybody will say, well, it's true, but now is the time to believe it by faith. So that's evidence. That's what we're talking about. What good is it to have faith without that faith evidence? James says, brothers and sisters, it's no good. If someone claims to have faith but has no fruit, now let me tell you, I'm taking a little liberty here. The word in Greek there is ergon, it's works. So often this is translated somebody who has faith but doesn't have works. But that can get us tripped up on this idea that we have to earn something, and I want to be careful to avoid that misconception. But there is a connection between works and fruit. Do you remember even in this series when we were looking at Galatians, Paul starts by talking about the works of the flesh before looking at the opposite, which is the fruit of the Spirit. You remember that? Now, if works of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit are on two sides of the spectrum, then I'll do a little math right here and say works and fruit are the same. There are two ways of talking about the same thing. So I'm using fruit here because of our theme and also to make it clear what James is saying, which is faith that is living will produce these results. And if it doesn't produce the results, then it's not living. It can't be saving faith. Suppose a brother or a sister is in need. They don't have clothes. They don't have food. And you say to them all the right words of faith. Go in peace. Be warm. Be well fed. But you don't do a doggone thing to help them. 
then what good is that, says James? Doesn't supply any need. And in the same way, that's what faith is like when it's just a bunch of words and it's not married to any action. It doesn't produce any fruit. Faith without fruit is dead. You believe that there's one God. I say that I believe there's one God. James said, big deal, good. The demons believe that. And even they actually act on it. They're afraid, they shake, they quiver. If the demons are shuddering, it means not only do they believe, but they're acting on it. So James is saying, better that than to simply say it and never have any action. Never any follow through. No place where you're actually trusting, taking a risk. If the demons shudder, how much more should you and I bow in reverence before God? So we have to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak. And now James is going to do what the author of Hebrews does too. He's going to appeal to Abraham and say, look, here's how you can really see when people trust. Abraham had faith. He put his son on the altar. He gave his son as a sacrifice, trusting that God would intervene. And by that, his faith was made complete. In other words, fulfilled its purpose. Do you remember when we were looking at the fruit of goodness and kindness? What we saw in the language there was they have both to do with purposefulness, fulfilling your purpose. Faith helps you to fulfill your purpose. In fact, it's the only way to fulfill it. In fulfilled scripture, Abraham believed it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. So a person's considered righteous, not just by saying words of faith, but by producing the evidence of fruit. Fruit is the evidence. You'll know them by their fruits. You can judge them by your fruits because that's what faith produces, or else the flesh. One way or the other, you're producing things. So as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without the fruit is dead. But hallelujah, we serve a God who resurrects dead bodies. So if you and I feel that we are living without faith, and if there's a sense of conviction in this moment that we are lacking in faith, then here is the thing to do. Call upon the name of the Lord to receive that quality of faith by which we believe. And this will be God's pleasure at work in you because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Anyone who comes to him has to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently and earnestly seek him. I want to come to the conclusion of this message by looking very, very briefly in summary at Hebrews 11, the great hall of fame of faith, because the writer of Hebrews basically says, look, it's been patterned for us over and over and over again. People who made extraordinary risks against extraordinary odds because they believed what God said, even though it was unbelievable. Noah, by faith, built an ark when all the world was poised and turned against him. Abraham, by faith, left his homeland, where all of the benefits of his inheritance from his father were, to go into a country he didn't even know about because he was looking for the city with foundations. You hear that? The city with the faith understanding, where Christ is the foundation, and he wanted to build on that because the architect there, the builder there, is God. By faith, Sarah believed the promise of God, and she considered, and God considered her faithful. And now all of us are descendants by faith of Abraham because of God's faith at work in them. All these people were still living by faith when they died. In other words, their day came before all the answers. And they did not receive the things promised here on earth. They saw them from afar off by faith and they welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. And that's us. We are sojourners for a little while in this dark place, meant to carry a light of faith, but looking beyond 
and believing for better. And even if we don't see it here, believing by faith that all will be answered there. People who say such things show that they are looking and longing for a heavenly country, a better place. And God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a place for them. Jesus said, I prepared a place for you so you and I can endure. That's the conclusion of this message. To recognize that we can keep on keeping on because God is the one in whom we trust, on whom we stand. Yes, there are trials that will come. Yes, there are traumas and terrors and tragedies in this world. But God tests our faith. Think of that Abraham, who the one thing that he was wanting, the one thing he was lacking, the place where he might have been afraid, was to have a son, to have an heir, to have a legacy. But rather than operating from the place of lack and fear, God said to Abraham, you will have a son, and Abraham considered it done even before he had the son. But look what God said. Now that you have the son, put the son on the altar for me. So God tests our faith. Even when he answers what we need, there are times when he says, now give it to me so that you and I will be refined. And if we think that's cruel of God, we should remember that the God who called Abraham to put his son on the altar is the God who knew even then that his son was going to the cross. He's also the God who provided the ram in the bush. He's Jehovah Jireh. He's the Lord who will provide. That's the focus of our endurance. It's in him that we will have sustaining faith through trials so that we won't fall apart. Even when he tests our faith, we can count it all joy because we know that our faith is being perfected. So Moses rejected what was available to him in the world so that he could lay hold of faith in Christ. That's how Paul puts it, faith in Christ. You say, well, Christ wasn't around then, but Moses saw him by faith. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He left what he had in order to go to what God called him to. And he became a leader of men and women in that way. By faith, Joshua and the children of Israel saw the walls of Jericho come down. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms. Prophets and kings did these things by faith in God. They administered justice. They gained what was promised. They shut the mouth of lions. They quenched the fury of the flames. They escaped the edge of the sword. Or even if they gave into it, even if they had to give up their lives, like Stephen before the Sanhedrin, they had their eyes open to reveal the glory of God to the world around them. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better Resurrection. Some faced jeers. Some faced flogging, chains, imprisonment, put to death by stoning, sawed in two, killed by the sword. They were destitute. They were persecuted. They were mistreated. But they were all commended by God for their faith. And the Lord surely said to them, well done, good and faithful servant. But they didn't receive in that timeline all that God had promised because they were promised something even better. And you know what? The promise is us too. What Paul, well, I should say the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that God intended that we should all be brought into one faith, one family of faith and made perfect together. Brothers and sisters, may the faith of the Lord be perfected in us. May the faith of the Lord perfect us to be declarers of the faith, a family of faith founded in unity upon Jesus Christ and moving together like an army of heaven under the sign of the cross.
with the power of the word to fulfill the faith until we've run our race and Jesus returns. Hallelujah. Lord, we come before you as children who are often faithless and we confess it and acknowledge it. And where we have faith, Lord, we often feel our faith is weak or little. But what you have said is any faith at all is strong. We need only trust and obey. And so, Lord, we ask that you once again would do that work within us. We stand upon you and upon your word and we ask, Lord, that you would fill us with faith today. Faith that is not afraid. Faith that is founded in your word and shaped by your spirit and available to your hand. Whatever our particular need today, Lord, we lay it at your feet. Wherever we are afraid, wherever we are discouraged, wherever we have sinned, wherever we are in need of fresh vision, fresh wind, wherever we are filled with hope and we simply need your confirmation or guidance, whatever it may be, Lord, we believe by faith that as we turn our faces to you, you grant to us everything of your character to bear the fruit of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.